Okay, so before we get to the top three, the power trio for the 1981 Big Hitter episode, well, we've got this final batch of also-rans to get through. But it's not a chore. These all come highly recommended by me, and it includes some massive big hitting monsters and some low-budget underground indie stuff. Also, you've got some cult classics thrown into the mix. Basically, what I'm saying is if you haven't seen any at all from this batch, then I would recommend that you jot it down and you get to a TV set and you get all googly-eyed because this lot are the shit. So let's kick it off, shall we? At number 24, we've got Tattoo. And with this, I would say, give the guy a pair of black gloves and we would almost have a rather splendid American take on the giallo phenomenon. Almost. Tattoo's DNA can be sourced back to the likes of Peeping Tom and Psycho, Taxi Driver, and even if you want to go real far back, really far back, then there's even the essence of 1927's The Unknown in this one. What I'm trying to say is, this film swings for a lot, but it doesn't really connect all the time, but at least it is trying, and during a period when so many mid-budget horror movies were happy just to sit within the lowest common denominator, just to make a buck, at least this one's trying. So, you want some mad filmmaking, starring Tippi Hedren from The Birds and her daughter, Melanie Griffiths. And also, a hundred wild as hell lions. You want that? Well then, feast your eyes on a film called Raw. My notes simply say this, and I wrote them straight away after watching it. What the absolute fuckery is going on here? The actual act of watching this movie is actually terrifying. I can honestly say I've never seen anything like it. To all involved, just no. And next up is the small budget and small concept creature feature called Venom. And all I can say with this one is just imagine the lawsuit that a pet shop would face if they give a child a black mamba in error, rather than just a regular house snake. I was thinking about that for a long time after I watched this. It's horrendous. Following this is the ghoulish ghost story. I will take you places where you have never been. Just start. I will show you things that you have never seen. Beginning. And I will see the life run out of you. Long ago, on a cold, dark night, in this peaceful New England village, something happened. Something too terrifying to remember. Something too frightening to forget. Something that has remained a secret until now. Anyone else seeing these? Am I the only one having nightmares? Universal Pictures presents Fred Astaire, Melvin Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., John Hausman. Ghost Story. From the terrifying best-selling novel by Peter Straub. 
Now, apart from the remarkably unnecessary nudity, this movie is such a 50s and 60s throwback that it's crazy. It is a complete package of a romantic haunting, and I really like this out-of-time and out-of-place feel. Also, it has to be said that the opening half of Ghost Story has this unique thing about it. The chemistry between Craig Wasson and Alice Krieg, it's electric. It's some of the best I've seen on the screen ever, and it makes this one worth the price of admission alone. And now we hit the top 20. Bloody Birthday. I love the look and the feel of this one. Three killer kids terrorising the town folks with all sorts of weapons. They are absolute cunts and I absolutely love it. On the downside, if ever a film needed gore, then it's this one. It's really lacking in that department. In fact, it could well explain why this one isn't regarded very highly at all from the horror hordes. Uh, regardless... I can bed behind this mayhem and it's a good job scary children it's a good job so following bloody birthday we've got the dastardly dark night of the scarecrow aka plaid shirt massacre am i right am i right i made that up i made that up that was a sort of joke anyway I read that this one was made for TV, but I don't know if that's the case. It's very cinematic in places. Uh, and actually, the only reason why I think the horror community doesn't obsess about this one is that we don't see enough of the Scarecrow. I don't mind inventive, bloodless kills, but I want more of that menace. I think this film is paced just right, so I don't want anything removed from it. All that stuff is great. Just two more minutes of the actual baddie. Is that too much to ask? And next, it's Day of the Triffids. Starting on Wednesday on BBC One, The Day of the Triffids, a chilling serial based on John Wyndham's classic story. A global catastrophe threatens humanity with a deadly form of plant life. If it were a choice of survival between a blind man and a triffid, I know which I'd put my money on. But you're assuming equal intelligence. Oh, no, I'm not. They don't need their intelligence to equal ours. Triffid sting, really? Yes, that's right. I, I work on a triffid farm. Thought they all had their stings docked these days. Uh, not the ones we tapped for oil. This one gave me a vicious swipe on the side of the mask and some of the poison got inside. You're rather lucky to be alive, aren't you? I, uh, take it you didn't see that comet stuff last night. No. Why? Well, uh, that seems to be the main cause of it. This comet was so bright it burned out something in the eye. John Dutteen stars in The Day of the Triffids on Wednesday at 7.40 on BBC One. So, Day of the Triffids. Well, I got from this that Arsenal fans are rapists. That's fair. I guess that's fair. Why would this show lie? I think they got the balance right here between the Triffid stuff and the dystopian future bits. They got that just right. And thankfully, to this day, it is still totally watchable. And if you can get over that made-for-TV aesthetics that does run through the whole thing, then it's definitely worth your time. Plus, this definitely counts as a movie to me, as the whole one-off series is shorter than Marvel's Endgame. And following this, and currently on Shudder, I might add, is Alison's birthday. It's an Aussie Rosemary's Baby, 
where the movie unfortunately plays its hand really quickly within that first 30 minutes and it has the film of one of those Hammer House of Horror things from 1980 uh, but it's got added blue gum eucalyptus trees. You gotta love it. You don't love it? Well maybe you'll love this. Sit back and relax because next up is a movie that so many horror obsessives consider the greatest horror movie of all time. And while I can tell you right now, it's not, because it's at my number 16 spot, and that's just for this 1981 rundown. Don't come at me yet, though. Uh, I am slowly coming round. I'm slowly coming round to this one. The film is directed by Lucio Fulci, and it's called The Beyond. So, to join me for exactly one hour, not one minute more, just one hour, is Mark Canali. And he lays down the truth bombs straight onto my face about where I'm going wrong with the beyond. So here it is. The astronomer that, like Andromeda, is the offspring of gods. He is the ever-clever and deliciously delightful father of Kara, fellow of Jojo, Mr. Mark Canali. is here there's nobody here i can feel a presence somebody else is in here oh some weird story that emily told me about room 36 emily who's emily the blind girl that lives in the old house by the crossroads seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How's a new oh. mic? Hello. Well, how do I sound? Do I sound sexy? We, well, we don't know. I've yet. got a cold, so this is, what it's going to do is really capture the essence of my snottiness. That's what it's going to do. Talking about horrific things to look at, we're talking about yeah. the beyond, the beyond. Yes, and Christ Almighty, my third watch just last night, Mark. Yeah, what I still don't. I mean, one of the questions is WTF, yeah. right? Um, well, let's get there before. before oh, okay, we, blimey. Yeah, we're just jumping in, right? Let's begin with some sensible stuff. Let's talk Fulci. Um, what's your history with Mr. Fulci? And I'll just let you know with me, never, ever liked these Italian things until I started doing the podcast. As you know, it's gradually growing on me, and I really now truly love Zombie Flesh Eaters. Truly love it. Right, okay, okay. And it's a Fulci, my favourite yeah. Italian horror so far. Yeah. So... That's, that's as far as I'm willing to go. <laughs> Tell me about your your love of this guy. Okay. Um, well, my history with with Fulci. Okay. Well, do you remember in I don't. You might even know the place. Do you remember in Charing Cross Road in London? There was a shop, and 
I, I knew it. I think it was called that. Uh, it was called the Cinema Store. It's long gone now. I don't know if you you I ever don't. went there. Or I you don't think about it. Um, it was there from as far as I can remember, or certainly the earliest I remember, probably the early nineties. I think certainly it was there in the late nineties. But it, it basically what what it was when it started. Anyway, upstairs it had. You know, it had all sorts of posters and stuff like that and uh, like trading card type things and collectibles, all this sort of stuff. Downstairs, it had like a DVD shop or, you know, like a Laserdisc kind of place. I think yeah, had laser, I remember it had Laserdiscs and stuff down there. And, and But what it also had, they also brought in Region 1 DVDs. It was a proper, you know, if you were kind wow. of a cineast or, you know, a fan of kind of movies and stuff like that, you would, you would go there because you would just find amazing things down the bottom and upstairs you'd have this great bit where you'd walk around, you'd buy posters of random bizarro stuff and, and, and so on. But what they also had upstairs was they had loads of books and they had magazines. So you had all the Fangorias and stuff like that on the wall and all this sort of cinema fantastique and all these sort of magazines with the front covers with all these sort of, you know, special effects, the horribleness and all this sort of stuff. Right. Sounds amazing. Yep. So they also had books, and I remember in the book section, there was always this book sitting there, and it was something like, I can't even remember, I think I actually remember seeing it when I was doing a bit of research for this, but it was something like The Magic of Fulci or something like that, you know, it's a, it's a horror kind of book, and it's a big thick sort of thing, and I remember the front cover was the shot of the last, the last sort of shot in in. In, in the beyond it was the shot of you know the hellscape right. you know the two figures standing in the middle of this kind of house and that was the the sort of front cover and i was always fascinated by this thing Spoilers. that was my not well that was my no well yeah that was my knowledge <laughs> of fortune was this book the sit there and this sort of image has always just stayed in my head and i, I didn't actually see a Fulci. probably zombie flesh eaters you know, zombie 2 is probably my first one as well but even that maybe 15 years ago not like you know not right in the early days of like getting into this sort of stuff it took me on certainly the beyond wasn't maybe that was only sort of 12 13 years ago maybe something like that so that was it that was my first thing i just had this image and it's always stayed in my head it's such an amazing image particularly in, in a horror film it just looks so you know yeah. you, there's no monster there or anything like that it's just this really kind of bleak <laughs> kind of image of two people standing in this sort of misty dirt bowl with bodies, strange bodies lying around them. And that's it. And it, it was yep. just like, well, I've got to see what this guy's done. And then I never did until then, you know, so that was my history with Fulci. And then of course, you know, eventually you get round to actually watching his stuff and praise the Lord, you know, it's like, <laughs> okay. <The Lord. laughs> yeah, I think he's absolutely bloody amazing. It's quite interesting because he did start working in comedy. Right. Which actually, yeah. when he started, uh, late 50s, early 60s, his first films were essentially comedies. He learns the trade making comedies. Um, he, he's, his first love of filmmaking was comedies, you know, was, was making these Italian sort of comedies. Um, and he, he did all right through the 60s. He did his sort of training, but... Um, was something really tragic happened in his life uh, his wife committed suicide 1969 Jeez. and it completely changed his i don't know where i don't know how, whether there's a huge reference I mean, it seems like there would be because seemingly straight after that he started making sort of giallos and he made lizard and woman skin 71 
uh, Don't Torture a Duckling, 72, these sort of films that were marked by the fact that they were giallos, but they had this kind of goriness. They had this sort of extreme sort of violence in them at times. Um, you know, this lizard in a woman's skin had this sort of the special effects. There's a scene, I don't know if you have seen it, where it's... Um, the dogs that have been kind of oh i've seen it oh yeah and there was just but and, and people it was one it's one of those films like, like guinea pig type things and stuff like that where people believed it was real because the, the effects were so like well done but like so it was such an intense scene and, and he had to go to court and the special effects wow, had, I didn't know had to bring in one of the, the he managed to find apparently only had one left hidden away somebody he managed to bring in the model that they'd use, the dog, can prove that it wasn't real dogs that he'd done. Because he, he said it was ridiculous. He loved dogs. Why would he hurt a dog? Of course yeah. it was like fake. But people believed it was real. So it's one of those things that at that time, this was really extreme stuff. And um, it was quite unusual. So I don't know whether his, that personal sort of wife thing caused this to sort of start happening. He had this sort of darker approach to, you know, that kind of Giallo thing where it wasn't, you know, he was he kind of really was going with the violence. He really felt, you know, if you're gonna do it, just just show it, just do it, just make it, you know, horrible if it is what, what it's meant to be. Right. Yeah. Um, don't torture a duckling, of course. Hugely um, notorious in Italy. So he has the I mean he's a Catholic, he was a Catholic, and he had this whole sort of thing. Um, we would always be introducing really anti-Catholic stuff into his films and Don't Torture a Duckling, of course, has this real thread of anti-Catholicism running through it. And and, and um, he, he got sort of completely sort of massacred in Italy after that came he almost got blacklisted in, in the Italian film industry because of this sort of anti-Catholic kind of extreme violence and, you know, children being murdered and priests and serial killer priests and stuff like that just bonkers kind of idea is this like what and so he ended up working in television and then making westerns for a while again did all right so he came back to sort of having to sort of do sort of general stuff again and then he just got this opportunity popped up to make zombie two zombie flesh eaters as we know it and it's a really weird story in the background if 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 we ever do Zombie 2, it's got a really bizarre sort of how he got the job and everything like that. It's quite weird. It, it was huge. It was particularly huge outside of Italy. Although in Italy, it made more money than Dawn of the Dead, which is quite funny. That's <laughs> just mad. Which is really funny because that's the whole point. Is it was supposed to be a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, even though nobody that made it knew it was supposed to be a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, even though Dawn of the Dead was called Zombie in Italy, but it's really weird the whole making of it. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, it made, but it, it was really successful. And suddenly, he was this amazing horror director, and he had literally no interest in being a horror director. This was his first horror film. You know, he, he was he was like he didn't even like horror films. So he got a producer who was a very smart guy, Fabrizio De Angelis, and this guy basically said, "Look, we could make a lot of money here." You know, we could, you know, we could really, as, as producers do, if they see a, a gap in the market, you know, he sat there and said, look, forget the Italian market. You know, this Zombie 2 is big in the States, big in England, big in other places in Europe. Let's focus on making this kind of film. You like, you love zombie flesh eaters. Do you know that's that's a comedy? Do you know when they made it, they intended that to be a comedy. I mean, I don't just mean intended it and then realised, oh, it's not funny. 
they made it as a comedy. They thought people would be rolling in the aisles. And when people were like horrified by it, they were like, huh? What? Oh, right. Okay. I, I, I can't I can't imagine like watching zombie flesh eaters and actually thinking, oh, this is this is funny. I mean, I think a couple of tongue-in-cheek scenes. Yeah. I think there's humor in his work. That's what I'm saying. There is a humor in the work, but it's so like mixed in with this ridiculous, intense sort of violence and stuff that it just seems like what what were you thinking when you sort of like sat down and let's make like this is a comedy. You editing it? Oh, that's this bit is really funny. This bit with the eye. <laughs> they thought people would laugh at the violence because they felt the violence was so overblown that nobody would take it seriously and people were terrified by it. People were sick and like sort of running out and they'd never seen stuff like it before. And so they kind of like thought, all right, okay, well then we'll make more like it. He made City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery in, in like a year and a half following that, 1980, 81. You know, these, these guys, he literally said, let's just do this. Let's just make these movies relatively low budget, quick. And they all did really well. They all did good business. Not amazing business, though. And what happened was they could never quite get to Argento's level. Right. They could never quite get there. Argento was making movies and it was making, I'll forget the numbers because I think they were Lira, but for example, they were making maybe like 8 million Lira or something like that, or maybe it was in dollars, I can't remember. And Fulci's were making like two or three. And he was like saying it was good. It was making good profits, but... It was bothering them that they they couldn't get near Argento's numbers. You know, his films were just bigger and more popular. And the Italian film industry has just got this weird, I suppose most domestic film industries have this kind of slightly strange competition kind of thing going on, particularly with films being with profits and producers and stuff like that. It kind of drifted away and they ended, he ended up losing kind of motivation and direction. He, he felt that the films were basically failures. He didn't realise that they, you know, they'd made a bit of money, but he, he thought they, he, they were just kind of being laughed at. He thought they were just stupid horror films and they you know, won't be taken seriously. And he kind of just, his health declined, uh, you know, and he, he basically... He died essentially alone. It's a really kind of sad story. He just kind of died sort of a fairly destitute and alone kind of. He, he was. It was just before the, the sort of the internet becoming like a big thing, and he never actually um, got to know what sort of influence and how beloved his movies actually were. He, he apparently his daughter said it was just before they were able to appreciate that because before the internet, it was really very little way of knowing. You just had numbers, figures, money, and that was it. That was the yeah. only way you could really tell. With these kind of films, obviously, if it were bigger films, you'd have reviews and stuff like that. But with these films, he just didn't know. And he actually died not knowing that these films, which is amazing now because he's considered like one of the greats now in this sort of thing. Never knew it. Well. The Beyond, for instance, is some people's not just like, oh, I love The Beyond, but it's their actual favourite film of all time. And th- th- you can pick and choose, really, with the, the Gates of Hell trilogy, that some horror fans keep that as the masterclass. That's where it goes. Everything else is underneath. Um, yeah. That is such a shame. That's yeah. crazy that that happened. Uh, yeah, happen it's, it's absolutely tragic in lots of ways. He, he literally, I think there's a story where he was, he actually got paid to come over about, I think it was weeks before he died. 
to go over to America and they paid for his ticket to fly over to America and he went to like a sort of a horror convention type thing and um, I don't know how big it was or anything like that but it literally they said the guy sort of turned up with a kind of crutch kind of he was just sort of wasting away and you know he was just he couldn't quite believe that anyone was really that bothered about it. and it was literally weeks before he died you know and I, I don't know whether maybe in uh, maybe just at that point maybe had some idea that's what i'm saying i'm not sure if it was a big thing or not but but yes it was like a kind of that that was it literally at the last minute so so he's 1981 very busy um where's the black yes. cat fit into this yeah that's another way he actually liked the black cat because it's more of the kind of he based it on the the sort of the, the gothic horror story so he actually he actually quite liked that one that was that one that was the one that he was quite sort of enthusiastic about i think they probably yeah. slipped that one in because of him rather than the producer thinking like oh that's a great one i think the producer's idea was more this let's just go crazy with the the gore and the bonkers kind of storylines yeah. and the, the yeah it is it's quite incredible in the gates of hell trilogy as well is that's this is the interesting thing you mentioned it there because that's as you say, it's considered to almost be this. I mean, we, we, we've spoken before about the unholy trinity of stuff, but this is considered to be like, I don't even know what you'd describe it as. What, what other sort of description, <laughs> that, yeah, what, what comparison there would be this idea of these three films? Because they, I mean, apparently did come up with this idea of these, these films that they were going to do in this quick succession to all have a connection to do with people basically living or being a, a, over a, a hellgate you know that, that opens and then bringing out you know into their lives the you know hell itself or, or swallowing them in, into hell so that's a story device right there is a plot to these people always say there's no plot but what you've just said overall could be seen as a plot you could, yeah, but the thing is, I mean, you actually look at the three films, they don't feel connected. I mean, they don't look particularly connected apart from the yes. obvious stylistic connections, you know, of, of, of the director and the writers and, and stuff like that. But uh, they don't particularly feel like they're part of some overarching, there's no overarching narrative going on particularly. It's, the only connection that you can really see is, yes, even though it's not really mentioned in, I think, any of them, I don't think, and it may be in House of Century, but nobody really mentions the idea of there being a, a gate to hell particularly. It's not like this is this is like a thing or there's any kind of, sort of strict, of, oh, right, we'll, we'll actually make this the, you know, the arc or anything like that through yeah. everything. The, the only thing that, that outside of just this idea of hell being there, or at least a, a gateway to it, or... Is, is the lead actress it's the same lead actress yes. that's in all three of them and even she said like one of them it was literally a case of they wanted someone else but they weren't available so she just did it so it's not even that was like actually intentional it was more just that's what they were just like working with her he just liked her and just used her so <laughs> the gates of hell trilogy is a really hard one to get to put your finger on whether it's actually a, a real thing or whether it's a a construct formed by the fact that they are three films that feel connected as well as having some rather loose thread that runs through the narrative narratively thematically i think because it's that same team same director that that is the gel 
Like that is it. You could place me in front of one of these films and any like two minute sequence. And I could tell you that, oh, this is from the Gates of Hell trilogy. Couldn't tell you which film it is, but I could tell yeah, I mean, you. Yeah. You could you could argue, I mean, certainly I think um City of the Living Dead and the Beyond. I think those two definitely, without any doubt, feel like siblings, very much so. That they almost feel like twins in a way. You know, there's there's everything about them, I mean, the you know, the the ridiculous sort of gore, the the, the kind of yeah, the, the, the you know, the intensity of it is with the City of the Living Dead, you know, the, the bit with the the of entrails coming out of the mouth and you, you read the stories of of how we got that done and stuff like that <laughs> yes. you know that that kind of filmmaking idea i'd argue house by the cemetery doesn't i mean it has the same look it's shot by the same people i think but it feels slower it doesn't feel quite in the same realms in terms of gore and stuff like that it's much more of a sort of slower sort of almost thriller type build up at times you know less of that kind of I don't know, intensity of kind of almost dreamlike, nightmarish proportions. House of the Cemetery feels a bit more like, oh, right, okay, actually is more like a thriller of what's in the basement type thing, you know. I did speak with Perrin um, about that film, House by the Cemetery, and he said, like, he asked, why, why have you chosen this one to talk about? It was for the video nasties. And apart <laughs> from it being because it was a video nasty, it's just because that's the one that I got sort of first I felt like I know this one a lot better than I know the other ones I need to watch the other ones again before I will come back to these yeah so and he said something to the 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 terms of it feels like the ugly duckling of the of these premiere three films Uh, you feel that as well yes yeah I think I think as much as anything is it is it the ugly duckling yes although is that because the other two are such magnificent swans that anything else next to it would feel like right you know in that sense of those those other two films are just so extraordinary that almost if you just just the idea of him doing three films like that would be almost like that that probably would be the greatest film trilogy in history if he, if he managed to keep that up I don't think he could keep that kind of thing up. It probably would have killed him. Or, or certainly one of the actors anyway. Would have probably <laughs> no, I mean, there's a, I think the pacing of, of House by the Cemetery and maybe the idea that sometimes it takes a little while for stuff to actually kick in maybe makes it feel a bit more like that. Whereas, you know, let's be honest, the other ones, it's, it's pretty much from word go, isn't it? It's just a constant stream of... <laughs> I don't know. I'm running out of sort of words to describe the gore, or the, well, the horror. We'll we'll get into the best and the worst of these films. I think mm. we could just we're going to go on for ages about that. I just want to before we do, I just want to know: Do you have to watch them in order? Does it help? Like, if you're fresh approaching these, does it help you to watch them in order, or can you just randomly go right? This no, way? And what order do you watch them in? I mean, I I had a look at some other people talking about them. Um, just to see other people's opinions on on the whole trilogy idea and, and what they felt about, and one of the discussions is well, what is the order right. you watch them? I mean, do you, I mean because do you watch them in a in, in the order that they were released, or yeah, do you, I mean. do, you yeah. do you produce some sort of chronological order of what's going on in the films? You know that kind of Marvel sort of like oh hold on do you watch it in chronological order of you know the superhero type things or and it's you know oh it's it's like some sort of like amazing thing or 
I wouldn't know how this is the thing that to me the the connections are, are almost just we're we're kind of projecting the connections and that's kind of nice I don't think that's a bad thing I think that's a nice thing great films will make you do that will, will make you connect them to one another because that that's that's where the strong emotions come from if you didn't care you wouldn't do that you care about the things you see the connections because you're really looking you want to look, you want there to be connections and that's nice i i couldn't agree more i have real issues with these films uh, as i say until getting into this podcast and now i still feel like i'm not with other people i'm not there yet but i get it finally you know these things excite me like you can plonk me on in front of one of these films and I'm just stunned at what I'm seeing, but I don't get what I'm seeing. And, and and this film especially does my head in. So let's begin it with the opening scenes, okay? So sepia okay. toned, okay? And it feels yep. now like we are in universal horror territory. Okay, okay, right, fine. What's going on, right? You've got this mob. Mark, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going to just. I, I mean, you actually messaged me last night about it, and I, I sort of said to you, "Let go, let go." You know, stop it. No, I'm not going to. You know, I'm, I'm going to throw this one back to you. All right, the opening scene, sepia tones with the Universal Horror. It was actually intended it wasn't even really intended to be in sepia it was filmed in color they did it one of the releases was in sepia there's actually three other different versions of it if you i think the the blu-ray version that got released most recently has all four versions of the opening so one of them sepia one of them's black and white one of them's in normal color and one of them's in a sort of weird sort of copper kind of tinting which i think is closest to what they really kind of wanted it because they wanted it to look like an old print of something yeah but you know, that's the version I've seen is just the sepia one, which yeah. I think was the, the 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 kind of the basic release of uncut release that we we've had for you know a couple of you know for a decade or two. Yeah, so even that, you know, let go. Don't 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 try and and sort of don't try and read the films in a conventional way in that sort of way. I know you love your narratives. I know you do. I know you have a sort of. I know you have a love for narratives. These films are not narrative films um I, i've got a great quote from um Filchy, which i'll read to you in a bit because it was obviously one of the big complaints about people you know the big complaints that people had with these these films was this weird lack of a narrative if, if you or if there was a narrative it didn't make any sense and this idea that you know <laughs> you know was it plot holes and, and you know there's more hole than there is plot kind of thing but it's not meant to be that. I mean, a really great writer wrote wrote these films, and certainly the Beyond, uh, Dardanus um, Sacchetti, and he he wrote. He he is probably one of the sort of unsung heroes of Italian horror and Italian theater, Italian film, certainly Italian horror and thriller giallo and stuff. He he wrote a lot of Argento films, Cat and Nine Tales, for example. He wrote he wrote um, Barva films, uh, Bay of Blood. He wrote. Uh, he wrote the Demons trilogy, for example, for Lombardo Barber, um, which I know you have a sort of fondness for as well. And um, right yeah, there, he, look at this. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's um, he, he wrote those. He, the guy was was incredibly prolific in in this sort of this scene in Italian um, cinema. When they sold these films originally, the producers, 
they basically got this guy. He sat down with Fulci and with the producers and that, and, and they basically came up with one paragraph. The film is based on a, on, on a one paragraph idea, essentially from Fulci, and he would write it up as this one paragraph sort of, um, you know, to sort of to sell it. And what they then got was they then got this amazing artist who I didn't write down his name. So I must have um, must have it in at some point. But who would then sit down and do a poster? No filming, no, no nothing. You know, there's nothing actually. Not even a script. And they got they they'd had a one paragraph <laughs> synopsis type thing. And this and a poster. This guy would do this amazing poster. And the poster you know of the Beyond probably is the poster of the the woman screaming with the knife. Yeah, across the throat and the kind of dark figure behind it. One of those, one of those posters, the one of those images from from that era of horror that is just in, just absolutely stuck in your in your head. It's one of those great images. That that was what they used to sell the film. That's where they got the money from. That's, that was it. That was the, they, they sold the distribution of the film from that. So you know you're worried about the narrative, the, the <laughs> narrative and the plot structure. Nobody cared. The distributors didn't care. They they bought it on the fact that there was an amazing poster and oh, gates of hell. Um, yeah, zombies, um, mad, uh, book of Ibon, um, weird. <laughs> Literally, that's the point. So we're going to go into the reading this film. The way I read this film is it's all about feel. And it's it's all to me. It's it's this sort of Lovecraft thing. And Book of Ibon is is Lovecraft. That's what it comes from. It's he used the the Book of Ibon and a lot of his stuff. It was actually written by a, a a writer, I think a friend of his, at least a writer he admired called Clark Ashton Smith, early twentieth century. It is one of those sort of books that you can actually buy the book, and it has this sort of thing where it's like, no, it's it's actually a translation of this prehistoric, you know, millennia-old grimoire, you know, of, of magic demons, sacri- human sacrifices, of the, the dark gods, of the, the ancient evils, and this kind of stuff. It was written Sounds in the great. early 20th Yeah, no, this is what I'm saying. It's, this, it's one of those books, you know, that's written by a guy in the early 20th century, a bit like the, you know, was it Necronomicon kind of thing. It's the same idea. It has that kind of mythology that's been placed on it purely because why the fuck not? It's awesome, right? Yeah, why <laughs> the <is> great. fuck not? <laughs> um, but it has a thing, and, and they got a lot of inspiration from that. They quote it in, in the film quite a lot. It, it's in the film quite a lot, obviously. The, you know, the cover of the book, everything, is, is, has this book of Ivan. It doesn't mean anything. It's all to, but it, it encapsulates what this Lovecraftian kind of deep dark feel you know this idea of the lurking horror the the lurking evil this idea of the inevitability of 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 horror the inevitability of 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 death of when when you listen to them talking about it and talking about how what they wrote the writers talking about it they don't talk about it in, in in passionate terms of character and motivation, they talk about it because in this, they talk about these weird sort of philosophical, sort of very Italian, sort of this idea of, well, you know, this sort of existentialist sort of doom-laden angst of, you know, well, life is nothing but facing the grave. You know, this idea of 
you know we're not we, you know as soon as we're born we the only thing we know is death you know this idea so yeah. you know this idea what joy is merely you know us trying to cover up the fact that we are constantly you know in fear of our own erasure from everything and it, they're trying to encapsulate this this in the film and and i think the beyonds is absolutely brilliant at capturing that. I, I think it just does a, an amazing job. Now, whether that's because it does it in a kind of, I think it kind of does it in a in a way that the the, the horrors, the gore, if you want to call it that, the gore really is more, I think, the, the response to the filmmaking, the idea of yeah, you know, the kind of the, the, the gutsiness of it. But this idea of the gore, the being so flamboyant of being it has that feel where it kind of makes you feel slightly sort of it has that queasiness to it no matter how desensitized you are to it i'm not saying it makes you feel sick as in a kind of oh that's terrible it kind of has that kind of soft squidgy kind of and the, the the way he kind of goes all in with it the way he goes all in with everything yeah there's nothing about it that, that feels like they're kind of sitting back going oh let's just get this bit over it can, can it's fine that bit's that bit's fine let's just move to the next bit yeah you feel they're like sort of like no 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 this this guy's eye really has to be pulled out let's we have to get that eye to really look like it's getting pulled out of the socket like stretched by the spine <laughs> you know it's really got to look like that you know you can feel them doing it, even though there's a spider in the background just being you know it's like <laughs> Baron uses the phrase pipe cleaner spiders, you know, it's a, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're so all in. And you can't help but just going all in with it. I, I feel anyway, it's just, it's such a joy to just let yourself go with it and just forget any kind of like, it, it's, it's Jaws, it's yeah, the sharp, yeah, it's a rubber sharp. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? It's so bloody perfect. I don't, I don't even think about it being a rubber shot. It doesn't matter because it doesn't feel like a rubber shot. It feels like the most terrifying thing in the world. And this film, to me, is that. It's, it's horror in its purest form. I'm going to say a couple of things here. So, first of all, we mentioned humour earlier on. And I think where it gets it right with this is it doesn't go into humour for me. And maybe our sense of humour is different from the Italian sense of humour. But for me, if you're doing eye trauma and you want it funny, you go the evil dead route where it flies out, you know, mm. into someone's mouth or something. Here, the, it cuts just before it gets that funny, that ridiculous. It makes you feel something inside. Like, you know yeah. what that could possibly be. Like, everyone's poked themselves in the eye. Yeah. Not to like that. Oh, but, oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's the two eye bits, aren't there? There's the spider eye bit where the spider eats the eye. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that one. Right? And then <laughs> there's the bit, obviously, with the, the nail going through the head from the back. And doesn't he have this obsession with either nails going into eyes or... <laughs> The back of people's heads. That's he has this sort of thing about the back of heads. You know, is it um City of the Living Dead is just obsessed with the back of people's heads coming off or being drilled around. Yeah, so the eye coming out on the end of the nail. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I mean I do wonder whether or not at this point they were like thinking, you know, if there was an element of because with the zombie too, they thought this the, the, the violence was so much that people would laugh. You know, you wonder whether they sort of like thought, well, let's let's keep trying, let's push it even further, or whether they just like thought, no, this is great. People really think it's horrific. 
oh great okay you know in that case let's make it even more horrific then why not you know i think i get the feeling that's probably more what they were interested in two scenes in this film really do it for me uh, i wonder if they match yours so mm-hmm. for me it's there's a cut between i think it's joe the plumber is his name joe i think so i can't remember <laughs> yes, yes it is. joe the plumber um uh, and he's He's found something in the other room. What is that? What could that be through the wall? Uh, oh, he's getting his eye gouged out. And then it cuts to this beautiful scene on a bridge with the, the blind woman who was yes. you know, in, in the initial sepia tone shots as well. And it's such a great cut and it's such a great scene. Yes. And it just makes me feel all sorts of things from ugly yes. and beautiful to, to just serene. It's beautiful. I mean, yeah, the, the, that's right. And and yes, there is this, that, that is an amazing cut. I mean, I think more than anything, I just think that shot of the, the, the shot in the car with the road, it, it's like, it, I think that's just such an amazing shot. I still, still to this day, what, every time I watch it, it, it kind of is one of those little shots. It just sends a little, because it lasts for, it lasts for like a minute or so. And it has these kind of little cuts of her kind of looking behind the wheel going like this. And then it goes back to the road. And the figure's a little bit closer. And then it cuts to her going, again. And then it goes back to her. It's <laughs> that repeat kind of thing, which could be funny. It could almost be, like, silly. But it kind of, you just, there's something about it. When you first watch that film, and I remember for, you know, watching it for the first time, that shot is just really strange and really impressive and sticks in your head, you know, at the end of it. I don't know, just the way she's standing there and the whole view, the perspective thing, you know, the road, the perspective so thing is like, yeah, it's it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Um, so, yeah, that that is, I mean, that is an absolutely stunning bit. I, other sort of best bits. I mean, I love the beginning. I think the beginning is brilliant. I think it has such, I mean, I remember, I, again, I remember the first time I watched it and I, I was quite sort of hyped with the whole sort of thing, you know, this, this, this is it. I'm going to watch this film. <laughs> yes. Yes. The film with that in it, this is, and I've read about it, you know, and this is notorious and all the rest of it. This is it. And how many times have you watched a film where you've had that in your head? And then, you, you know, within the first 10 minutes, you just kind of like, you know, you realize, all oh, right, okay. It's a horror film. Yeah. You know, we've, we've all kind of had that because horror films are very good to build up. They're very, you know, they are very good films to get excited about. Why not? A lot of them never quite sustain that, particularly in their mm-hmm. openings, you know. But I thought this one, I literally was like, oh, fuck, this actually is like, you know, this actually is like pretty fucked up. This is actually really nicely done. And like, you know, has a really, you know, with the, her reading the book and the kind of the VO with her sort of, you know, sort of strange passages and these guys and it, the, again the sepia tint thing you know and it can like crucifixion which is really nicely done with the effects and stuff like that yeah and you know i, I remember at the end of that thinking okay i'm kind of all in for this, this that's a that, that's a proper opening for a, for a film that you've kind of been waiting to see yeah that's that's kind of paid me back so i love that i love that opening sets you up for a um, nice linear story I mean, I'm trying to think whether whether or not I kind of gave up on the first watch, you know, with the, I gave up as in like gave up trying to follow. I'm pretty sure I did try and follow most of it in the first watch and did have that, did have the, sort of the, the, the classic reactions of what, you know, sort of, of wow, where's that going? I, 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 I'm assuming most people when they first, the first time they watch, yes, you do. Remember, we've spoken before about the idea of the language 
of horror and how we are we speak the language of well just about cinema in many ways but particularly in horror you know you 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 grow up you learn it and and when things some films move away from that and i think that does add sometimes it adds to from sometimes it just makes them even more confusing and not very good but sometimes i think it actually can add to it because it can make them a bit more scary it can make them more sort of terrifying in lots of ways um i know i keep bringing his name up it must annoy people all the time but lynch does it you know why are david lynch films which which are not horror films why are they some of the most horrific films why are they some of the scariest films you know why do they have some of the scariest characters in them just you know just just in them just for for no apparent reason he does stuff that just and it's because the language he's going to use to tell the story is not quite the language we're used to and like any kind of dream you're not if you're not confident about the rules well, you know, then that just makes things much more terrifying. And I think, again, this film has that. This The mood of this film has that. The rules aren't quite there. You don't quite have that sense of the rules, and particularly the first time you watch it, and, and certainly the joys of the multiple watches come, I think, from that idea of not just where did they get that from, but from just letting yourself go and letting those things happen to you. But, yeah, I think my favourite bit, let's be honest, is the ending. It is the end. Right. I think it's everyone's favourite bit, I, th- I think. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone that would, wouldn't say it's not the ending because I think it's just, it's got to be one of the top, I, for me, one of the top five, certainly horror film endings, if, if not endings at all in films. And I mean, that, you know, it's up there with like The Thing or something. I mean, it's, it's just profoundly like stunning. The first time I watched it, you have this sort of moment, they're in the hospital, and it's kind of been going for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes in the hospital. And it feels like it's just kind of gone to this sort of Romero-esque zombie thing. Where it's just this constant stream of shuffling yeah. undead, getting closer, you know, being circled. And the idea of running out of ammo, it's like a class. It's, it's such a sort of a standard thing, isn't it? The idea of you only got so many bullets and they ain't going yeah. down, you know, it's that sort of... And, you know, you, at that point, you are, like, thinking, okay, it's just we've now reached that kind of point. And then they go down some stairs and they're back in the basement and, and you know, and they just walk into the basement and then suddenly they're in, like, this, the as I said before, the hellscape, this this image, this imagery, which is, awesome. I, I still think, just amazing, just, just absolutely stunning. <laughs> And I, I just like when we you were watching it last night, I watched it last night as well, just to, to sort of jump on this one. And I still, it still is like an adrenaline rush. You know, it's coming up. You know, it's coming up. And you see them suddenly, you know, you see all these zombies and you're like thinking, oh, this is it. This is the bit, you know, this is like, and they go down these stairs and, it, you know, he just, the, the, two, the guy just like goes, it's just impossible. You know, <laughs> You just get this, I just get this like little rush of like, and then there you go. Yeah, you're in hell. Here, here is the thing. I mm. trust Lynch. Um, so yeah. I, I I am confident as him as a director that if I don't understand it, this means something. Let's dig deep. Let's watch it again. Let's try and pick through this. With Fulci, with most Italian directors. I don't trust them. I, I'm not there yet. So I don't know yeah. what they're trying to project of anything. What's this ending mean to you? It's, okay, right. Here, I'm going to go again. Stop it. 
<laughs> yes, what does it mean to me? Yeah, okay, all right. I, I could tell you what it means to me, and and you know, yeah, that's that's fine. What yeah, yeah, what does it mean to me? Is it it just is? It's the ultimate existentialist act. It is the ultimate. It is what you know. The the the, the inevitability of it. It didn't matter what happened before. It's just they were always going to end up there. That was it. That was that was the point. And and they were going to end up there. And whatever it was was going to be this horrible. And and to me, it is the, the ultimate sort of horrific. There's no fire. There's no demons going coming after you. You know all these. Imagine all these kind of other representations of hell in 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 cinema and TV. And so many of them have this idea of it being sort of torture pain or they have this uh, probably from you know the standard ideas of the Dante and stuff like that coming from the idea of this or even sort of mythology and stuff the idea of hell being sort of constant pain and things like that and torture which fair enough not exactly going to be great but in terms of like until we get there some people might I don't know but until we actually get there this one feels like that feels like a hell to me in in its sense of just of there literally just being nothing but just it's almost like nothingness that that almost is you know kind of the, the most existentialist kind of hell isn't it this idea of of being and then nothing it's, it's a kind of true hell isn't it in a way if if unless you have some sort of like you know theory of something happening beyond the beyond, in a way, is that's nothingness. It's just the idea of being lost in in nothing, in the dirt. In... Oh, I'm going to chuck this back at you. So I, I said, you know, forget it and let it go. The reason I said that is because, you know, you, in a way, you're right. You shouldn't really trust these directors in that sense. I mean, the, the, the original ending for the film wasn't this one. The original ending for the film... You can, yeah, if you don't know this, what is it? I mean, this is bonkers. The original ending for the film was to be set in an amusement park, and the what? two characters, yep, the two characters were basically that this was them going to hell, and hell was going to be an amusement park, and they were going to enjoy it. They were going to go on the rides because the, the whole, the whole, the original theory of the, the, of the story was that. Life was just the terrible thing, but life was hell and death was a release from it. And so they, the only joy, the only fun would be in death. And so they would go and suddenly they'd, they'd be in a, an amusement park and that would be their death. That would be their, their afterlife. And they'd be on like the big wheel or they'd be on a roller coaster and be laughing. But they didn't have the money. So they literally had to come up with something in one phone call. They, they just had to come up with something. And, they, and then this is what they came up with. You know, the, the basically the screenwriter, Fulci, producer, cinematographer, I think was in on it as well. And they just kind of came up with what, what can we do? And so they came up with that ending. And the actual look of the ending was Sherlock. There was a studio next to where they were filming. And they had lit, they were going to, I can't remember what film they were going to be filming, what type of film they were going to do. But what they'd done is they'd brought in loads of dirt to put into the studio floor and they'd laid down some brambles and stuff like that it was obviously going to be some to, to fake an exterior scene kind of thing in the studio 
so it was they hadn't started filming so there was just a studio filled with essentially just dirt that had been brought from somewhere and the cinematographer found this and sort of like okay we could use this for this scene rather than us actually trying to find something and what happened was it's, it's fairly convoluted but essentially the moisture that was in this fresh dirt when they put the lights on in the in the, the the studio this big studio this moisture started evaporating and, and the, he said there was obviously something chemical in it or some sort of geological type thing in it and it was creating this kind of fog that yes. fog is not created artificially in terms of it just happened when they put the lights on the heat you know and they started spraying water on it to get more of it to come up and he said all he did was lit this kind of he just saw it just like, what yeah. is this this is great you know like the, just the ground is weeping it's lovely it's astonishing and he, he lit it and he put some backlights to it so it lit you know, so it brightened up the the kind of fog and he, you know and he, he said it was just astonishing he said it was just so amazing and he couldn't believe it and they got some people in to lie on the ground you know this is the beauty of filmmaking in a way as soon as you find out a lot of the time about how things are made you know it's like that shot it's probably stayed still is in my head has been in my head for 30 years or whatever you know is that, that that's that particular shot and, and you know it's just so sometimes filmmaking is that it's just those moments where something you had in mind doesn't work out and you go, oh, should we just do this? And, and it just turns out to be something that's absolutely mercurial, you know, something that's astonishing. And that is my favourite bit. It's very interesting that you said about the fairground because my take on the ending, because of course I pulled something sort of linear from it, uh, was that, right, the ending of this is that they've finally been given peace. They're finally allowed... <laughs> chill from all this that's gone on okay fair enough this is hell but my god thank goodness all that noise is over no distractions you've got each other peace right that's that's what i'm picking up from it oh man i love that that's absolutely brilliant. i love the idea that the to me what is probably one of the best images of of horror of hell of uh, you know just one of the most terrifying images of all time to you is so they got out. Oh, that's good. They're fine then. Yeah, they can build a sandcastle or, you know, they can chill out. You know, oh, the, the relief. I would just, just be like, the sound of groans for, for, for the you know, eternity in the background. You know? Compared to what we've compared to what they've just, just been through for an hour and a half. Just hum away to yourself and just go over there. No, that's fine. That's good. I like that. Right. Okay. These these are probably the good bits. What's the worst bits? Now, this is going to be tricky for you. I'm going to tell you what my least favourite bit is. From the moment I first saw it, I was like, oh, come on, until yesterday when I'm like, oh, come on, is the spiders. So, like, everybody loves the fucking spiders. It's amazing. I've already said about, like, the idea of, (laughs) yes, yeah, there there are the worst fake spiders of all time in there. Of course there are, but... As I said, it's just I just what I love about that bit. It's just it's not just you, Mark. It's not the world loves this bit. I know, and I, I tell you what, um, I saw Fabio Fritzi do the music to this live. Wow! When he was doing the tours I mean. a few years ago, and he did the the Fulci to Fritzi 
tour. I saw that. I saw this, and and this was one of the scenes that he did. And he he had the project, yeah, the screen behind him, so he did the music with it projected behind. And some of it was just like he would just do like a medley. And this was part of the medley was the scene, this particular scene. He was doing the music from it, and I, I remember at the time just watching it and just you know it, it's it's really long. And it's really drawn out and it kind of has this thing where it's kind of, it, it, you can just sense the joy of like going, yeah, we're, we're, it's going to be spiders. And it's like, ha you hate your spiders. Oh yeah, but not only that, imagine you were awake but couldn't move. And then I'm going to put the spiders on you. Okay, and then I'm going to put them on your face. And then I'm going to make them start eating your eyes. And then I'm going to make it go in your mouth. And I'm going to make it eat your tongue. And then I'm going to make it go down the back of your mouth. And it's like, you know, you could just sense the joy of him, like thinking, what's, what's, what's even worse than that? The right, you know, sort of sitting there and just thinking this, like, oh, God, yeah, what if it was like, yeah, and it's like, Ugh. we have to make sure that we know the guy's awake. We have to make sure that we know that because, you know, if he was just unconscious, it's just, we have to make sure he knows it's happening because that would be the worst thing to actually know it was happening. I love it. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's got a crap spider in it. Who cares? It's, like, it's just beautiful. The sound design as well in that scene, like, just to, yes. to, is amazing. I will give it that. Yeah. The soundtrack to this film, what a what a what a soundtrack! Fritzy is just brilliant. I mean, he did, and I should have added this on the best bits. Actually, I meant to sort of say about the soundtrack because you know I love the soundtrack. That's why I kind of went and saw it because I think the guy's just amazing. And then um, the piano theme that he has, that piano theme that's played so and stuff like that. It's, that is just one of those sort of you know sounds in horror that soundtrack of horror that that is just one of these but you know the use of the mellotron you know i love mellotron stuff i'm an old man so you know of course i like mellotron <laughs> stuff like prog rock type stuff you know king crimson and all that sort of stuff i love mellotrons just because they sound just off they have that weird thing where they sound really nice but at the same time there's just something about them that's not it's that kind of analog yeah. tape thing you know the sampling kind of idea where it's just got that slightly sort of sound to it it's great yeah and and he uses it in this because the, he, what he wanted to do was have a big orchestra but he said obviously you know that was never going to happen so the mellotron was the next bit the next best thing you know it's like all you, what you would do is you, i literally had got a guy in and got a, to play the violin do every note and then it got a flute and you know he got a chorus type thing and all this and you know like the the the, the sounds at the beginning oh the really deep sounds he said it was great it was the bottom note in the mellotron you know it was like it was this guy's <laughs> yeah. voice at the bottom note and he said it's like it's really weird he said it just sounds really off because it's real but it's not there's something not right about it it's an uncanny valley thing going on it's like just beautiful but yeah so okay the worst bits okay yes this place so the worst bits the, the, the worst bits that i can kind of have are obviously things like the dialogue and the dubbing because they, they are particularly shocking in, in this. the dialogue is pretty pants at least at least the the kind of dialogue that's supposed to be the kind of naturalistic dialogue maybe the yes the lovecraftian type stuff is great but you know the kind of chatter and you know the, is there supposed to be a romance sort of thing it's just a bit kind of bizarre oh 100 percent there is yeah but you know that sort of thing <laughs> yeah maybe not so much i have to admit that's not great but i i'm satisfied with that because i know to the filmmakers it really wasn't that important either and, and to them it, it really it, fulci was notorious in his kind of disdain for actors <laughs> 
He literally, it was in a sarcastic way, but he did call them the puppets. And he said, he would, he would shout out on the set, bring out the puppets when the actors would come in. He, he wouldn't talk to them and tell them what, you know, discuss what to do in a scene. They would just get bits of paper with kind of a kind of bit on it, you know, giving, telling you know, with him, Bear. telling them what to do. And I mean, yeah, the stuff he obviously did with some of these, yeah, to some of the actors as well, you know, like it's tantamount to basically torture. Right. As I said, the entrail bit in, you know, City of the Living Dead, which if you talk about that to someone, that's obviously one of the big bits. And that girl actually did have to swallow lamb entrails and she vomited them up. I mean, it was literally swallowed them and vomited them. You know, Gross. you're just like, okay, you know, I don't think you'd get away with that now. <laughs> It also has that feel to it. It also has that feel, you know, that kind of 70s feel, although it's in the 80s. But one of the great things about these films at the time is that these, these filmmakers, some of the great films in the, the 70s, you, you won't get them made again. And the reason you won't get them made again is quite right in a way, because they were just too bloody dangerous. And people would do stuff that was just, the, the directors would just, push the limits beyond what they should have done but of course they would capture things in the film yeah that were spectacular in that sense cinematically and sure. you, you can feel that and, and again that's another part of these films they have that feel to them but yes yeah, so, i mean the dialogue the dubbing is pretty terrible the zombie type thing as i said before you do it's pretty obvious that that stuff has been added in because people wanted zombies that was kind of it, you know, if you were going to have a, a Hellmouth, I don't think he wanted zombies to be part of this idea of the hell, but they did it anyway, because why not? Yeah, People I feel like it. a producer's stuck a, a post-it note on his little rider fridge, zombies please, and he's like, right, yeah. I'll give you a zombies. But I, I still think they're fine. I mean, I love shuffling yeah. zombies. It's that, that you know, I'll, I'll have shuffling zombies all all day, every day. You know, any zombie that that won't go beyond a shuffle, forget it. <laughs> shuffle, yeah. Just don't. I can't, you it. know, literally, there's the, there's the to me, there's that kind of line where it's drawn. Where if they, if they if they can move to a kind of brisk walk, then no, I'm not really interested. What then about uh, punching a shark, having a fight with a shark? What about that? It's, it's a thing beauty i can remember see i can remember the moment of watching that for the first time with with with, with a friend and just the two of us just looking at each other just this is magnificent bro. This is sorry i'm, I'm taking you off i'm taking you off no but it's true it's like i mean this is the thing that you can imagine them sitting there saying no one's gonna take that seriously and literally, we must have spent half an hour afterwards, A, saying, isn't it just beautiful in a kind of crazy Italian, isn't it kind of stupid, funny way? But also like going, but that kind of would be a thing, wouldn't it? The zombies underwater thing is the thing. And then why not apex predators? This isn't it. It's, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It, it just leads you into it. We've been at this an hour now. Final question. We need the usual, Mark. I know. We need I know. a couple of films that you're going to add to this, and you can't say the rest of the trilogy. I know. But, this is yeah, the thing. It's really obvious films, to do that, isn't please. it? No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I mean, this is the thing. This one's not going to be a popular one because I actually kind of sat down and thought, okay, you've got to kind of think about the horror films. You could think of lots of other horror films, if any, because it's, you know, the idea of the gore, the Italian, all this sort of stuff. There's lots of connections with lots of other horror films. That'd be great. But the two films that came to mind, because 
as I said to you before, this film, I kind of love, yes, I love because of the over the top, or the gore, the hell, all that sort of stuff. But it's the feel of the film. It has this slightly dreamy feel to it, this slightly off feel. It's kind of strange and it has, and it leads you to have that sort of off, off kilter sense. And I kind of thought, okay, there's, there's two films that I think have that. One of them is, this is not going to be a popular one because it's a film that I like, but I know a lot of people don't like it. Um, Ninth Gate, Polanski, Johnny Depp. It's all right. Um, I, I really like it. I've always had a thing for the, I've always had a thing for the kind of grimoire kind of you know ancient evil books Necronomicon type things. I've just always liked that kind of idea, you know, the Malleus Maleficarum type stuff. You know, these yeah. weird sort of strange books with people being you know, tortured and stuff like that. I know it's just ridiculous, but I just really have a lot. And that film has that kind of thing. Obviously, this film has that, and it has that sort of sense of the impending kind of doom, the idea of of it all starting off as just well, it's a book and then it kind of getting kind of weird starts happening and by the end it is like can hell you know it is you know hell opening and stuff and it's you know the gates to hell and that's that's the whole point of the film and i kind of thought okay that's kind of a nice one to go with it i i think like it. it's a weird you know in many ways tonality wise it doesn't sit next to it at bit all. of a mess bit of a mess but let's be honest, that's the point. That's what we've just spent the last hour talking about. Tonality, out the, you know, logic, Damn. throw it out the window. Just go with your gut. Just go with your feel. And the other film, I'm going to go with the kind of the, the strangeness, the dreaminess, the, the oddness. And I'm going with Werner Herzog, Heart of Glass. And I know this film. It's not a horror film. This is the thing. It's it's a. I'll be honest with you. I don't quite know what it is. It's a, a historical drama, but this is. It's probably one of the strangest films ever made. Um, Werner Herzog, of course, it is. But he basically made it. And what happened was he he basically got the entire cast, and he hypnotized them, and they performed under hypnosis. But it's not like a stage show. They they are it's a historical drama, but he got them to perform under hypnosis and he got them to learn their lines under hypnosis. And if you've if you ever see it, I guess I say it's not a horror film, so I don't know if people are going to be into it. But to me, it's one of those films that you should just watch just because it is one of the strangest things that's ever actually been made, that's ever been put on celluloid i mean it really is one of the most peculiar experiences you'll ever have watching a film it's very hard to describe it and that's that's why in a way i'm kind of picking it because it has this really odd feel to it and the whole thing is just very odd and it makes you feel very odd watching it and it and it kind of doesn't go anywhere it's just a drama it just is a story a kind of weird historical story yeah but it's got it's just one of those things that's just odd and strange and feels weird. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wish I could have just picked some gore fest of like craziness and disgustingness, and I probably could have done, but I just Girl, they were the two taste. films I thought of. Yeah, I know. What can I say? Oh, yeah. uh, what was the name of that film again? Heart of Glass. Heart of Glass. 1976. So weird. <laughs> I love it. Sorry, I'm sorry, man. Hey. Thank you so much for joining us yet again. Uh, I think none of this is going to be going on Patreon. This is all 
all bloody gold. All bloody gold this is going on the regular show. So, yeah, thanks for coming across uh, across right. into our face. As I should do with a Fulci, yeah. Right, massive thanks to Mark Canali for joining us there to speak about some Italian nonsense. And now back to the rundown. At 15, we have The Pit. And the main character in this, Jamie, he is a pre-teen pervert. And if that's not the best Ramones song title that ever wasn't, then I'll eat my pit. I actually really enjoy this one. It's pretty depraved and gross in all the best ways. And if, like me, you're a big fan of Red Letter Media, well, those guys, which are, you can find over at YouTube, by the way, well, they covered this one in hilarious detail on their Plinketto episode number six. Definitely worth a watch, that one. And following the pit is a little movie you might have heard of called Halloween 2. It's the one in the hospital, and I used to think that this was better than the original growing up. Uh, I was very wrong about that. But then again, I used to think that girls had willies that used to pop out when they did a little wee. I was wrong about that too. From this, just take it that I'm wrong about a lot of things. At number 13, the absolutely incredible slasher called Just Before Dawn. And thinking about it now, I think this one should be higher. It is very, very good and it gets better on repeated washes as well. I was worried that if I described it to you and you hadn't ever watched it before, then it might put you off because... It hits all the regular slasher beats, this one. It just gets everything spot on. It's so rare. Just before dawn. Next up, what could be better than that? Well, it's The Howling. It is a movie that growing up, I thought it would be the be-all and the end-all of horror. And it's definitely not that. But it has grown on me over the years. The issue is that Joe Dante's direction is definitely on the wonk for this one. And Dee Wallace, she's been way better too. Uh, check out Cujo for evidence of that. But what could it do? An American Werewolf in London came out in this very same year. Of course people are going to focus on that. It's one of the best films ever. It just had no chance. But the recent rewatch that I did, well, it had me laughing and it made me jump in all the right places. It's not essential, but it is 100% worth hunting down if you haven't already seen it. And finally, we hit number 11, and this is another Ozploitation banger. It's called Road Games. Road Games. What the hell? The truck driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games. Aren't you kind of young to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? And a killer is playing the deadliest game of all. Oh, he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. 
Stacy Keach has quit. No, no, it's Q-U-I-D. D is in death to young girls, you cretin. Jamie Lee Curtis is Hitch. Panic and camera. Now you're uh, looking for a little adventure, huh? I could go to Disneyland for a little adventure. What I'm looking for is a little excitement. <gasps> Road games. Now, for the first time in my horror obsession, the presence of Jamie Lee Curtis completely elevates this film. It was just a simple Aussie thriller, and because of her, it is now the cult classic that we know today. Australia comes across as just so oppressively beautiful, and Rogue Games shows it off so well. I love it. Saying that, the ending was really, really obvious. In fact, it was so obvious that it became not obvious anymore. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Uh, I feel weird about it now. I've got to have a think still. I've watched this really recently. Regardless, I couldn't pop it in the top 10, but it's bloody close. Uh, it's an amazing find, this one, for me. I'd never seen it before. And that is it. The top three beckons us all. That's the end of your also rounds. I hope you found something worth watching out of that lot. I would recommend every single one. Let's get to that top three. This movie is so huge within the realms of horror that just seems little point in adding to the noise. But I was really, really keen on speaking with Paul Chanter about it. I hope you are too. Uh, we'll get to that part in a minute. On my recent rewatch of this one, I watched it with the commentaries on. Uh, that was the Arrow Blu-ray. And I fell in love with this film all over again. And yeah, it's my third favourite movie to come out in 1981. Uh, it's the magnificent John Landis. It is American Werewolf in London. I'm telling you that up front. And I love it. And there's two better than this for me. Two better. Here is a few things I learned about it uh, that I don't mention in our chat. Uh, the first, first of all, first of all, the opening music was meant to be Cat Stevens' Moon Shadow. But because he was born again, he didn't want anything at all to do with horror movies. So yeah, it was meant to be this. Yes, I'm being followed by a moon shadow. Moon shadow, moon shadow Leaping and hopping on a moon shadow Moon shadow, moon shadow And if I ever lose my legs I won't moan and I won't beg Oh, if I ever lose my legs Oh, I won't have to walk now, of course, Moonshadow didn't get played, and we'll go into, when we get to the music side of things, just what was played. But there's another thing. It's actually the Brecon Beacons in Wales underneath that title sequence. And I can tell you that I visited the Brecon Beacons uh, on a few different Welsh holidays. And I have been there during the day when the sunshine is blaring, and it is just so 
breathtakingly beautiful to look at. But I've also been there on stormy days and I've been there on snowy nights. This place is flipping lethal, as dangerous as anywhere in the world that you'd care to mention. So be warned if you're going on a vacation scouting visit, wear some decent boots. What else? Apart from travel tips. Oh yeah, oddly, the sensors, they didn't have much of a problem with the transformation scene as you would think they did. But the sex scene, that was the issue. It was cut back to what it is now. Apparently, there's like a good 5 to 10 seconds cut from those shower scenes. And also, you're meant to see a lot more of the bottom throbbing up and down as it's having its end away. All cut. Talking of cuts, that magical cutaway to Mickey Mouse during that transformation scene, it used to bug me no end. Uh, I was young, I watched this a lot. But now I guess, if you're going to do that sort of thing, if you're going to cut to something just to make a smoother transition or you know to cover up anything that didn't quite work out, then I've got to say, I just want to give a little tip of the hat to the house of the mouse because they could have sued the pants off John Landis and they just let it go. And Mickey Mouse, he's always welcome. He's welcome in my heart. I mean, the rest you already know, no doubt about it. It is American Werewolf in London. Here is the trailer. La 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 la. Isn't this fun? Lovely stroll on the moors. Did you hear that? I heard that. What is it? You think it's a dog? Nice doggy. Good boy. What happened to them? Well, the police report said they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. A wolf. My friend Jack was just here. Ah! Told me that I will become a monster in two days. Your dead friend, Jack. Yes. You gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. What? You'll become. I know. I know. A monster. Now, this might well be the shortest letterbox synopsis yet. Two American tourists in England are attacked by a werewolf that none of the locals will admit exists. Hmm. Anyway, regular guest to a year in horror, Paul Chanter. He is back right here, right now. We were chomping at the bit to speak to each other about this one. We claw our way through it. And of course, we answer the age-old question. What is the better movie? Is it The Howling or is it An American Werewolf in London? I wonder. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. Lord. Hey Paul, Hi. welcome Hi. to the podcast. It's been ages, mate. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, um, yeah. It's good to see your face. It's been it's been all all of ten to twenty seconds since our last episode. Hey, you're a big fan of Batman, right? Before we go into this, I watched Batman 1966. Do you like that one? Uh, for what it is, yeah, I can I can switch 
my head around. I'm like Wurzel Gummidge. I can put my 1966 Batman head on. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, found that probably the funniest film that I've seen, and it's intentionally funny, so it actually made me laugh because it was designed to, um, for decades, decades and decades. I haven't laughed so much and fallen in love with a film so hard. <laughs> uh, it, honestly, Batman 1966, what a bizarre thing and i just thought i've got to ask you about it because you're mr batman (laughs) no it's great it's great for what it is they call you bruce i mean i i still maintain to this day that lego batman is one of the best batman films ever made it's fucking brilliant because he is perfect they have nailed the character of batman they couldn't write that film if they didn't know batman in and out and they got it bang on and that's how they were able to take the piss so well uh, that is now on God, my it's list. Fuck, it's brilliant. 100%. It is brilliant. And it's so fast, you really need to pay attention because they're just throwing <laughs> shit out so quickly. It's just amazing. I love it. <laughs> brilliant. Okay. Nice. Talking about Batman. American Werewolf in London. <laughs> Here we go. Hey, I had to get that out, Paul, because, like, honestly, I you know when you love something and it reminds you of someone, I'm just like, I need to say this these words to this person <laughs> so i've done that it's tick <laughs> okay right we've done this before with every film we've talked about that this is going to be an interesting one what is your history with a film that even though it's definitely a horror appeals to so many non-horror fans when you speak to a non-horror fan they will mention this right. um as oh, oh no this is one of my favorite films you know uh, so what's your history with american werewolf in oh, london oh god this film this this it, American Werewolf in London traumatized me. It absolutely traumatized me. I'll try and say this as quickly as possible. Just the poster of this film terrified me as a kid. Wasn't a fan of horror, and this had everything in it that terrified me. It was monsters, teeth, there, all that kind of stuff. Now my mum, my mum, my mum was dying to see this film, and every time it was mentioned, she would state how much she was dying to see it. Then my brother saw it on VHS when it came out to rent, I guess. And I remember him, we were at my granddad's, I remember him really graphically describing the transformation scene, which just made my mum want to watch it even more. Um, And it just shit the life out of me just hearing about it. Then I was shown the transformation scene by a mate of mine. He came belting up to me in in the road in the village where I lived. And he's like, oh, mate, feel my chest. Oh, I just watched this film. It's so fucking scary. Come and have a look at it with me. And I went with him like a twat. And he played the transformation scene. And I hid behind a door while it played shit myself didn't actually shit myself but you know um and then it was on terrestrial tv my mum obviously was like yes she finally got to watch it and all i did from upstairs as a kid was go mom can you turn it down i can hear it (laughs) it was just the sound of it was bothering me then i went and stayed at a mate's place his family videoed it so i had to sit through it and watch the fucking thing (laughs) I just couldn't wait. I just could not get away from this film. Um, and then I ended up recording it off the TV and then some kind of weird, uh, fucked up kind of Stockholm syndrome occurred where I watched it over and over and over again uh, in minute detail, in slow motion, every killing, every change, every transformation. But, you know, since then, um, I've always had a copy of it. <laughs> So going from being absolutely terrified of this film, it's a film that, you know, I'm sat here talking about it now, about how much I love it. It's a very strange journey I've had for this. <laughs> I love that. 
like so were you literally with that transformation scene just like pausing like how do they do this how do they do that pause, yeah yeah pause, you know pause, like pause. Uh, well we had a, a a video player from radio rentals so you could press pause on it and then you'd press press pause over and over again and it would just go frame by frame by frame click 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 oh, click 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 and i would do yes. that i'd go through the whole thing so i could see every detail and I'd be like i think that hands I think that hand's rubber. Oh, that's that's real. That's rubber. That's oh, he's in the floor there. That's fake legs. Ah, oh, right. And it's almost like I had to break it down so I knew that none of this is real. <laughs> you know, it makes sense. Like it makes sense. We're going to get to this transformation scene in a bit. Cool. That's, that's so interesting that the way you uh, sort of got into it because for me it was just like oh, here's another one in our price. I've heard of this. <laughs> I'll buy it. Let's see what that's like. You know, it was a yeah. it was a nothing. It will it will slot nicely next to Hellraiser or whatever yeah. in my collection, um, and I always liked it. Again, this is another nine out of ten for me, not a ten. Uh, and people were always like, "Oh, really? It's not a 10? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, Name yeah. something wrong, which we might do at the end. Um, but yeah, so there we go. That's my little history, which is nothing as awesome as yours. <laughs> I love that it's a, a film that's haunted you uh, <laughs> until you finally relented yeah. and have to desensitize yourself to it yeah um like so the one thing i found out on my most recent viewing um because i watched it with the commentary on just seen it so many times now yeah um and it was frank oz that plays the guy that gives the news to david that uh, yeah. jack's dead and i didn't know that before so Mr. that was my Kessler. little treat it was my little oh all he said all he says is mr kessler mr kessler over and over again yeah yeah, Yoda oh, comes to the hospital to see him. Yeah, exactly. So then I'm trying to look at the screen like, oh, is does he look like Yoda? That are they saying it's him, but I don't. So yeah, there we go. That was my new thing. But I tell you something that I loved from my very first watch uh, was Rick Mail. I, I just could not believe yeah, who I yeah. saw in there. Yeah. Because at the time I got this, I was well into Bad News. Right. Um, bad News with the comic strip was my favourite thing. It's the thing that I would get up and watch. <laughs> if it was a Saturday, I'm going to put that on and I might go to bed watching it as well. But would you, you know, wake up is... and go, it's another heavy metal day, time for some vibes? <laughs> <laughs> I fucking well would. So, yeah. <laughs> to see him in this, I was just like, oh, oh it's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. To, so we got the slaughtered lamb. So I want to know how nerdy you are here, Paul. So have you actually gone to this pub yourself? In I haven't. Many no. days. And it's not. I'm that nerdy. I know that the pub's not there. The outside is is um, when they're outside. That's somewhere in Wales. I can't remember where it is. Yeah. Um, the statue and stuff that's outside is not real. They brought that in. Uh, the angel that's outside the slaughtered lamb and when they walk into the slaughtered lamb they're walking into a studio back in london somewhere so um right it's not it's not a real pub i don't think i think the the exterior is real because uh, i think i think there's a cut this is the thing there's a point in there where they say that's uh, in the commentary where they say it's not a real bar that is someone's house Right. So this part of it is someone's house. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's not very clear except to say in the street um, there there was a big uh, red phone box and they covered it up with this tree. And when you know they've done that, 
um, you can't but not see how huge this trunk of the tree is right. <laughs> compared to every other tree around. Yeah, yeah. This is the biggest tree. It would have yeah. been tree beard. It yeah. was huge. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there we go. So, um, your thoughts of this scene? Because this is a scene that I love to bits. I've got a little story, got a little story of when I was in holiday in Wales and I... Uh, we were just exploring all the waterfalls we could in our week off. So me and the wife, we found this waterfall and down below was this tiny little cafe. And when we went into the cafe, we asked for cream tea, as you would. Um, and they gave us a cup of tea and put squirty cream on it. And <laughs> there you go. That's your cream tea. But behind the bar was a flipping, uh, what was that, five-pointed star thing with a with a circle around it and I was just like we need to get the fuck out of here Claire we need to get out as really? soon as we can and finish our squirty cream we're getting out really? so I I've, <laughs> I just was like I know what this is I want to get out um, and I'll send you the link to to the pub <laughs> so you can uh, wow uh, you can visit Do you it that was genuine or they did that to like to deliberately freak out the non-locals I did not ask. <laughs> it's not like we walked. <laughs> it's not like we walked in and everyone went ooh and turned around with that comedy. Who's this in our pub? It was a. There is not one single soul in here. The the barmaid who was obviously is the owner is just um, hoovering out the back. Yeah. Uh, and I had to ring a bell to get my squirty cream tea. So <laughs> I, I was I was out of there as soon as we finished. We left. I don't blame uh, you. Yeah. Man. I don't blame you. Okay, so uh, let, let's discuss this scene. Sorry, I've just been going on about my, my own no, bullshit. No, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> What's your bullshit with the slaughtered lamb? Like, It, it must be, because for me, it's such a fantastic scene. Um, is this where it really draws you in? Or are you actually drawn in way before this? Um, it's kind of... Because you've got the intro. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, you know, if you want to get film student-y wanky about it, they are... They are lambs in the back when they're you know, they're with all the other lambs being brought to the slaughter, you know. So they that's when they turn up. But um, no, the the slaughtered lamb, and then they go to, go to the slaughtered lamb. Um, I've <laughs> I've been in a few pubs like that, you know, especially down here in Sleepy Devon. You know, you walk in, you boys ain't from round here, are you? You know, it's like there's a bit of that. Um, it's a, it's kind of a classic setup. It's almost like a western kind of thing, where, like you said, everybody walks in, and the whole place goes silent, you know. Um, but it's a, it's, it's almost. It has a whiff of hammer about it. That scene. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it would be kind of updated hammer, but there's something that reminds me of hammer. You know, them walking into this bar, and uh, but it's just the setup for the for the rest of the film because you you know. You know, all this, you know, stick to the road, lads, and all this kind of stuff. It's like something's not right out there, and it's just setting up everything that follows. And it's done in a really uncomfortable way. You know that these two are just, you know, sat there in their big puffy jackets, both of them looking like a water tank each, you know? Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that it's like this is all uncomfortable. It's not like you know beginning a dead man's shoes uncomfortable but it is still it's still uncomfortable you know like these two are aren't welcome and can i can i get some tea you know <laughs> it's like it's just yeah complete fish out of water and they're just not welcome there but 
even when they when when they realize they're not welcome and it's like it's best you should leave they can't just kick them out you know they have to they know what they know what's knocking about out there you know but so yeah rick mail popping up that kind of blew me away as a kid and the fact he doesn't do anything he just like spits into his pint that's the funniest thing he does um just sat there playing chess while brian glover tells his awful bloody joke um you know but even just I think my favourite part in that whole thing is, you know, you made me miss. That's just, that's just, that's just my favourite bit. That, you know, if I, if I ever throw anything anywhere and somebody fucks it up for me, that line comes out guaranteed, you know. That um, uh, spitting the beer out scene, like mm. when it was described to him how he should do that um, by Landis, he didn't know what, what do you mean? What do you mean spit my beer out? So he was like going like that and spitting out. Like, no, 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 no. You know, he had to actually down some beer and do it to show him what he meant. Right. Um, and now that scene is just like, you know it, because it's happened in a thousand TV programs and films since then. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm trying to find like where this has stemmed from. And it's really difficult to find anything before this moment. I'm not saying that this was the first time, but just that thing Oh, the spit take. Thing. The spit take. Yeah, the spit take. Have you seen the you footage know, that... of uh, George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino practicing their spit take on the set of From Dust Till Dawn? I think it's in <laughs> Full Tilt Boogie. If you've ever seen Full Tilt Boogie, the, the documentary of uh, the making of From Dust Till Dawn, it's on that where one of them will take a swig and, and then they'll just go, really? You know, it's just kind of <laughs> pissing about both, like doing their version of a spit take. But um, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know. You wouldn't think that Rick it's Mayle... Got be, it's got to be in Westerns, you know. It's got to be that thing where you're patting someone on the back yeah. and they've gone... Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. It's got to have been double. I couldn't find it. <laughs> uh, anyway, there you go. That's my little bit from that. Um, so, fuck all this. Let's get to this transformation scene. <laughs> so, you mentioned rubber hands, right? Jesus... I'm looking at these hands and I'm thinking, right, I know what's what. I've been talked through it because I watched the, the Michael Jackson making of, yeah. uh, which led me to this making of. So I've seen all sorts of things. But even when you think, oh, I know how they're doing that, they add this little touch in. Um, so like the nails growing or something. Mm. And it's just like, oh, okay, they didn't do it like that. And of course, these cuts are lightning quick. Yep. Um, and oh, well, <clears throat> I say cuts are sort of just the way where the camera is positioned. Uh, you know, these things are so incredibly clever. Mm. And as you mentioned, not really done as well since. Take me through it. Take me through what you feel about this. Uh, is it the same reason that this film has bonded uh, so strongly with you? Is this the one thing and everything else is built around it? Or is this just another scene in an amazing film? Um, it It's definitely the scene for me in this film. I mean, there are there are there are a few great scenes in this film, but it's you know it all comes down to the transformation scene for me, um, because it's just it's 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 unbeatable, genuinely, yeah, and it's never been beaten, you know. Um, <laughs> the the Academy, <laughs> the you know the the Oscars basically introduced a category for this film. And and gay and Rick Baker was the first person to win the best makeup Oscar for American Werewolf in London. You know that's like, 
yeah, this this is so good that we ought to kind of make up a category, really, and give it to this guy, because that's fucking crazy what we just watched there. <laughs> you know, and like you said, there's so many... What they did that was really clever, you know, because John Landis going... Um, you know, well, what they would have done before is, you know, put some, make somebody very hairy, take a bit off, film a bit, take a bit off, film it, take a bit off, film it, and then put all that in reverse order and then just use dissolves and it would look like the hair appears. And John Landis is like, no, I want to see him change into a wolf with all the fucking lights on in the front room of an ordinary flat in the middle of London. Do that. And anybody with any brain or smaller balls would have gone, you can go fuck yourself, mate. I'm not even attempting that. But Rick Baker, who has got some set swinging on him, was like, yeah, all right, I'll give it a go. You know, so, and he nails it to the point of winning Can't an Oscar. That. But I think what he did that was clever is, like you said, he, he used so many different techniques that you lose track. Instead of just going, well, it's just, it's just a guy in a suit. It's like, no. That's a guy sometimes with hair on him. That's a fake head. That's a fake hand. That's now a real hand with a fake bit on the end of it. Um, those are his legs. Those aren't his legs. That's not his back. That is his back with bladders underneath it. It's like, how the fuck can you keep up with this? You can't. So by the end of it, you're just like, right, okay, I'm just going to go with this. This is a guy turning into a very large wolf right in front of me. And it's done per like the pain of it. That's what's never been done before as well. Oh. That I've never seen. It's like it's really painful. Like when his face comes out, he screams when his face comes out. And that's my favourite shot in the whole film when he does that final roar. It's just that is real. That's in that's that's a, a practical thing. That's actually in camera, and it looks amazing. Even now, it's it just looks amazing. And yes pisses on the howling transformation hands down i'm just ending uh, that debate right now <laughs> it's it shouldn't have even been ever a question really. <laughs> yeah um yeah the, the, i mean the sound design you mentioned that jaw bit the sound design on that and you're right you, even before he screams you get just like oh my word like yeah uh, like the jaw coming down oh, and the fingers sort of snapping and, and popping as they grow elongating as well it's just <laughs> And the other thing that you don't realise, because you're so taken up with the visuals of it, is that as he's screaming, his voice is getting lower and lower and lower in pitch until the end it just turns into a growl. So he starts screaming as, you know, a, an ordinary guy, and it, just, it gets slowly lower and lower and lower in pitch as he turns more into this animal. It's, just, it's, it's unreal, and it's never been beaten to, to this day. And like now you watch something like... The Wolfman or whatever, and and you're like, yeah, it's CG, yeah, okay, yeah, don't don't CG. If you want to stand out moment, don't CG it unless you're going to Terminator it, and you can't, you know, what 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 new is there yeah. to to show us? I'm yeah. sure there will be one day, but yeah, uh, I, I get that. So tell me, I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> In the middle of that transformation is a Disney character that pops up for a brief second. Yeah. Um, why? Why? Do you know what that's about? I I think I think it's just um, I don't know whether it's like to give you a break. I don't know whether it was to give you know to give the viewer a break because this is pretty fucking intense. I don't know if it's like uh, to enable a, a time jump 
in the change so if you like if only his hand goes at a yeah, certain point and then be, when yeah. you go back he's a bit hairier and like oh yeah you didn't see all that hair appear because it would have the transformation scene would have gone on for 10 minutes otherwise or it might just be like john landis just being a dick because you know he's just he, he's got a bizarre sense of humor obviously which we'll get on to in a bit but um it might just be like yeah i i like the idea of this character just being sat there while this horrific thing is happening in the background because he's still screaming and everything in the background and like the music's still playing it's all it's like this is the wrong setting for something so horrific to happen but it's that's what makes it even worse i think because it happens in such a mundane everyday environment you know that you're like that's i know what a front room looks like i know and for that to happen i don't don't know there's so much going on with it that it's it's I love the setup. I love the setup because he's gone out, he's opened the doors, mm. um, uh, you know, fresh air or whatever it was that he opened the doors for, and he comes back and he doesn't close them. Yeah, so yeah. Like, instantly, it's like, right, there's your get up. That's how he's got out. Because he's yeah. not had to smash a window and That's jump what a lot of people have digged about. It's like, how, because you see that he's turned into this massive wolf at the end, and like, how the fuck did he get out? And it's like, nah, if you watch, he left the door open earlier. <laughs> Well, I guess you're not focused on that. It's only no. like the twentieth time you're like, "Oh, yeah. I, oh yeah. okay." Yeah. Because you're just like, "Oh, come on with this transformation. Let's do it." Yeah. Uh, you know, you got Credence, uh, bad moon rising pain. You know it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. So yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> hey, there is uh, before uh, before we go into the problems, right? I want to mention another scene that it tends to be people's favourites, and it's something I learned on the commentary, and I got so nerdy excited about. Um, is that on the stairs of the underground station yeah. uh, and you see the wolf slowly yeah. come up. The person that that wolf's chasing is the actor that is Bib Fortuner from Return of the Jedi. And I didn't know, Paul, and I got so... Oh, <laughs> this is... How could this get any better than it just had? And it has. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And he has That's one of my favourite lines in the film. Which is uh, and it's full full hammer as well. I am a victim of your carnivorous lunar activities. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, he has. That's like my favourite line in the film. That and that's enough. You know, it's like <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that kind of freaked me out as a kid when I was like, no way. That's the guy with the with the massive tentacles. He talks shit to Jabba all the time. No way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it took me until I'm almost 50 to, to find that <laughs> out, and uh, I fucking love it. Every day's a All school right. day. Yes, mate, yes, mate. Okay, here we go. Think This is universally loved film. Um, it, it clearly is. Everybody loves it. Arrow Video releases a new version of it every year, um, you know, so people buy the shit out of this thing. They want it all. But I think it's got problems, um, and... I'm going to mention three things, and if you want to defend them, fantastic, okay. defend them. But here we go. So the first thing, um, I'm going to scrap the first one. It doesn't want. It doesn't hold water. Second thing, <laughs> Nazi demons. Here we go. Right. So the Nazi demons. What the fuck? Like, what is that dream sequence about? Um, can you defend it? Is it worth defending? Uh, yes. What's wrong with you, man? David Kessler is Jewish. That's that's the real that's the answer. There you go. 
Okay. So that's why right. he had a, a, a fever dream about Nazi demons. <laughs> Next, you fucking Luddite. <laughs> Wolves in the, the wolf itself in the finale. Running past the uh, the bus. It looks like it's on a skateboard. Like it, it doesn't look great at all. It looks terrible. After you've done that fantastic transformation, you're going to do this. I'm not having it. Um, but are you having it, Paul? It's not on a skateboard. Technically, he's on a plank, kind of like you know when you used to do the wheelbarrow as a kid. Oh my! I made that up. Are you kidding me? No, no, okay. no. You know what? You know when you used to do the wheelbarrow as a kid, your mate would hold your legs and you'd walk like that. Yeah. It's kind of done like that. Um, so the guy's got the wolf head on. And and that's his, that's his arms. Uh, the back legs are puppeteered though, because they don't come in shot very often. Um, I think a lot of it works. There's one shot where it looks a bit iffy, but there's a couple shots where it's kind of snarling at the bus and all this kind of stuff. It looks fucking great. I love it. Um, but there, yeah, there is one shot that you're like, mm, Rick, come on, you could have had another take at that one, mate. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But I do think that 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 scene, that whole setup, that whole scene, is absolutely fucking gnarly, and it's totally sort of works uh, when you've got a decapitation like that. Yeah, it's so it's so full on, yep. and it I, I th- this man can direct the shit out of horror. Yeah, like there's no denying that it's an incredible scene, and it's so scary, it's so fast. Yeah, and then there is that scene in the middle of it. So that's my other pick of like yeah a, yeah. That's fair enough. Go on then. Uh, well, the th- as I say, the th- that third one doesn't hold water, so I don't know if I want to mention it. I want to know um, what it is now. You can't back out of it now. You can't mention it. All your <laughs> your enthralled listeners just, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're about to delete the podcast. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So, um, the love interest, the lo- the whole love story about it. Right. I'm not totally convinced by it. Like, I've seen it a lot of times and it's always been the sort of dip for me and I know I have to get to A to B to C to D for the whole film to work. But it just doesn't play right for me and I think it's more of a personal thing rather than a universal thing. How's that pan out for you? I can see, yeah, I I can see how that uh, might be. A, 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 a flaw um, it's kind of rushed uh, I was thinking this when I was watching it recently that um, you're kind of tethered to the as soon as somebody's bitten by a werewolf you're, you, you've basically got a countdown to the next full moon so you've only got that amount of time to fall in love Yes, you know um, and it's a bit so it's possibly a bit rushed yeah I can see how uh yeah, I could see how that might come across as a as as a bit of a, a niggle somewhere. But oddly, the ones that the, the ones that you came up with aren't anything that I had as flaws. Um, I think with the Nazi demons, it's the masks. Um, yeah. F- considering what happens throughout the film and how clever and how innovative this whole thing is with the makeup design and the the horror effects a decapitation and how crazy it all is to go to sort of tv movie of the week in america scary masks yeah it just takes me out of it a little it's it i think that purely came down to time and and money 
that you know um he wanted this thing and it's like i we've put all the energy and time into this fucking transformation that you want us to do um i can knock up some masks if you want and and they had no articulation to them they were literally masks but one of those masks was good enough to you know stood out enough to be stolen pretty much by, by slayer to be used on t-shirts for the rest of their career <laughs> um but yeah i do get it it's it can kind of seem a bit um jarring a bit like kind of where has this come from but um yeah and 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 the masks do almost seem like you said a bit a bit of a letdown you know the bar has been put up here you know um or or hadn't yet i don't think because he hadn't changed yet but you know, when you watch it on repeated viewing, you're like, hang on, they managed to do all this transformation, but they couldn't even, like, make the eyes move in this mask or whatever. It's, uh, yeah, I can see it. But, yeah. This is, it's a a a little pick, and I'm saying it's a little pick because in most other movies that I've been watching uh, from 81, these would be the best moments of those films. Mm. Like, even the love story would be, oh, that's really interesting, the way that Mm. all came together. Uh, you know those masks, those Nazi demons. Look at them; they're incredible. Yeah. You know, um, or, or the, the werewolf walk. I'll be like, I can't wait for this bit. Yeah. But I just think this film sets the bar, like you say, that high yeah. that any slip is a slip. Yeah, um, it's not. It's well, which, yeah, it's it's weird. Like for me, um, the, the kind of the flaws that which I felt I had to come up with for this. <laughs> I thought, all right, oh, I, I can't I, wait. I, I, come I on, to come up with some. Um, <laughs> the first one I would say is that the English are very English in this. Um, you know, it's 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 clearly, uh, you know, like the, the I am a victim of your carnivorous lunar activities. That's <laughs> I don't talk like that. Well, actually, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do, <laughs> but what I'm fucking about. Um, it's clearly sort of an American's vision of what they think England is like. Because on one hand, it's almost like you've got each end of the spectrum. You've got, oh, it seems to be, uh, I seem to have been attacked by an escaped lunatic. And then on the other end, you've got, uh, stay, stick to the roads, lads, and all that, you know. And in the middle, you've got, um, the closest thing you've got in the middle to an actual real English person is, um, you know, <laughs> the taxi driver, you know. Reminds me of the days of Jack the Ripper, you know, that guy. <laughs> Who is actually Bricktop from Snatch. Who's driving the cab? Yes, driving the yes. cab. Um, so yeah, it's clear. He always looked old. It's yeah, it's it's clearly like an an American's version of what they think England and the English are like, you know. But that, I think I said it earlier on. That kind of gives it this hammerish quality. That I mean, it's kind of up for debate, I guess. But to me, it has that accidental if it might only be accidental but it has a sort of a whiff of hammer about it because there are those accents in this film you know and to me that kind of it makes me think of hammer stuff um and one the other see i've got two i've got two more flaws with this is it as reviews argued at the time is it too funny to be scary and too scary to be funny I think that it's the one of two films that gets its spot on with Shaun of the Dead and this one. I, I honestly do. I think they're the two films that get its spot on. I don't. I, th- I think the thing was when this came out, there wasn't such a thing as a horror comedy, and nobody had nobody had kind of 
experience that. So I think people going in watching a horror were like, well, there's too much pissing around in it for it to be a horror film. And then people were like, oh, it's meant to be quite funny. Whoa, Jesus Christ. This is a bit full on to be a comedy. I think it just threw people a bit. But for me, yeah, the mix of it's fine. I mean, I, you know, I, I just like a, you know, I just like a few chuckles with the, with the blood and guts at the same time. But my last niggle is the ending. Ah, okay. That that super harsh cut at the end is jarring as fuck, and I know I know that's what John Landis was going for. Like bang, right out. You know, it's like we're done. It's like a quick shot of him in the nip, and then uh, we're done. Um, I know that's what he was going for, but just thirty seconds more, if like, uh, and you know, I didn't want like her sobbing. I mean, I actually quite like the bit where she's crying after he's been shot. I think the way she cries and all the all the coppers run past her. I really like that. I think that's really effective and and borderline kind of emotional because she, she's she's really emoting in that bit and it's really good and all these coppers run past. But just like 30 seconds more of her with this I mean you, they wouldn't have been able to, but they might have been able to do it. But like you know that thing snarling and sort of gnashing about in front of her while she's like trying to reason with the guy that's inside that thing. I think yeah. just a bit more of that would have sold that end to me. Sold it a bit more, and it wouldn't have been like, uh, "David, I love you." It's like, what the fuck? It just ends really quick, and everybody I've watched it with who's never seen it before, you know, this is over years and years and years. Anybody who's never seen it before, they're like, "Whoa, oh that, okay, that's over then." It just seems to throw people how suddenly it ends, but. Apart from that, and I was forced to find those niggles. Um, apart from those, yeah, you know, it's um, it could it could have backfired. You could have had a sort of "Twas Beauty That Killed the Beast" sort of yeah, like yeah. punchline that would have just ruined what you'd seen. Yes. You know, so yeah. he could have been playing that safe. Yeah, um, but yeah, even like having some bobbies just like talking amongst themselves, like where is it? Or anything like that would have added something yeah. uh, to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. I've not thought of that before, but yeah, you're right. It is, you're out of there. <laughs> like, no man's with That is proper hammer horror way to end a film. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, bonk, get out of the cinema yeah. now. Alf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, here we go. Final question. And this is, I'm not going to give you mine first off. I want to hear yours because oh, I don't want any repeats. Right. So. I hate werewolf films. There we go. I just don't like them at all. Right. I like one. It's this one. Um, there we go. So that that's that. Uh, I'd have named some others that I like, um, but it's grudging like. Where, where where does this rank with werewolf films for you? Is it the best? Yes. <laughs> that's that's it. Pretty that's much. Cool. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. Like you, uh, I I I would love to see a better werewolf film than American Werewolf in London. I'd fucking love to see that. But unfortunately, they're all shit. You know, there's there are films that, um, you know, there are films that uh, have the kind of, you know, like The Wolfman, that had such, that that was such, I was so excited for that. Um, you know, the Benicio Del Toro one. I was so excited for that when I heard that it was being directed by the guy who directed Chopper. It was all going to be uh, practical effects. It was going to be Rick Baker doing it. I was like, "This is f- I'm fucking one hundred percent behind this." And then you know it gets uh, he he jumps off the project. 
Joe Johnson comes in, CGI comes in. I'm like, oh, fuck. Right, okay, that went out the window. You know, so werewolf films, I, I, I can't think of a werewolf. I know that there's, I know that there are people now who are screaming the howling at uh, whatever, uh, up, uh, you know, whatever thing they're listening to this on. Um, I've, I've never liked the howling. I've no, I've never, it's never done it for me. You know, the only other werewolf film that I own that I think is pretty cool is Dog Soldiers. Um, but that's a, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's a completely different. To me, that's a completely different type of werewolf film. It's not about the werewolf. It's about the guys. Um, I would love to see somebody tackle the guy bitten whatever attacked by a wolf survives becomes a wolf has to deal with what he's done blah 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 blah. i'd love to see somebody tackle that again not remake american wealth in london because that's a very specific thing um but just somebody tackle that try and give it something new not cg that's what i'm talking i'm not talking about no we'll throw something new at it we'll throw cg at it just try and find a new way you know, like you know, like Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it's a heist movie, but you don't see the heist. That's the thing in it. It's a new way of doing it. Just, just somebody do something new with that. Uh, you know that that traditional werewolf story. And the reason it's kind of like those kinds of stories get retold is because they are ripe for retelling. It's like you can interpret it in so many different ways. So I don't know what I don't know why. Maybe it's a money thing. Maybe that's why it just hasn't been done because it's exp- it's an expensive thing to do. You've got because everybody knows you've got to put a transformation in it, and then you've got to have a full werewolf effect. So if you do that practically, loads of money. If you do that CG, loads of money. Do you want to throw mm. loads of money at a werewolf film that might bomb at the box office? No, thank you. Okay, I'll take my script and fuck off. Then. <laughs> you know, it's like so. Maybe that's why it never happens. Oh, we'll do Dracula. It's just some fangs and a, and a long coat, you know, long cape or whatever. It's it's just easier to do. Um, maybe that's why, um, and maybe it's just it's t- it's too traditional horror now, and and you know, like when you did a review a while ago uh, of Ginger Snaps, I thought Ginger Snaps was a really cool idea. I think um, I think some of it was let down in its execution of that idea. I I I, th- I think it's a good film. I would happily watch that film again, but I don't think for me it's a great werewolf film. I think it's a good film because it's tackling things in a slightly different way, but for me, you know, with a werewolf film, I want to see I want to see something belting through the street at like 30 mile an hour taking people down like gazelle, you know. That's 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 what I, that's what I want to see. <laughs> yeah, it does seem that there is that massive gap between like the the forties with the original Wolfman yeah. to this. Yeah, um, and there's a whole ton of stuff in between that just doesn't hit. Where you don't get that with Dracula films, and you don't get that with Frankenstein films. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's strange because you had like all the happened. Hammer stuff, and you know, uh, well, not even the Hammer stuff. I don't. Oh yeah, Hammer did uh, Curse of the Werewolf, I think, with them. Um, with Oliver Reed Um, but yeah you had the universal you know the Wolfman and stuff and then there was the odd thing I guess I mean like the the only one that's really coming to mind and I don't even know if it was after American Wolf I'm uh, Wolfen um, with uh, I think it's Albert Finney Um, I think it was the same year really 
Um, yeah, I think it that's was interesting because then just and then you know how the howling, which was I think the howling in American Werewolf, their production was very close because there's a little thing of like did did Rob Bottin kind of nick Rick Baker's ideas and bugger off to the howling and do it, and I think there was a little bit of a race to see who could get their film out first because I think like oh we somebody nicked some of my ideas and they're going to do a transformation over there yeah. so we best get it out as quickly as possible and then uh, ha, i won the oscar up yours um <laughs> but yeah I, I i think i i think i think it's still the the uh the, the one to beat really for me um and nothing has kind of come close to it so is it the best werewolf film for, for me yeah definitely definitely um, yeah, I, I I can't say anything different. It is, um, I, as I say, I did write five down um, that I've enjoyed uh, since starting doing this. Go on then. So the first one I haven't seen yet. I'm due to watch it tonight. Uh, it's called The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Ooh. It came out in 2019. Oh. The reviews were through through the roof. I've yes, okay, I, I've seen that. Yes. Uh, is it good? Is it actually a werewolf film, or is that spoiling it? <laughs> um okay no 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 don't, don't say because i'm sure our listeners wouldn't have all watched that either um right so we'll scrap that one we've got four <laughs> that's what i meant to say uh we got the wolf man from 41 which i've just mentioned um right i, I just think if you're gonna watch one uh other than that it was being my definite go-to definitely yeah um Last year, Werewolves Within came out, which is like a whodunit yeah. scenario, yeah, uh, which was okay, pretty good. Yeah. Um, Teen Wolf, can't forget oh, Teen Wolf. I forgot all we? about Teen Wolf, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Great film. Yeah. Um, I, I, I said to my daughter the other day, she's 22, I said, uh, well, what do you think of Teen Wolf then? I'd never heard of it. Teen what, what? And there's a TV series that's out now called Teen Wolf. I think that's very angsty, um, though, the TV series. I guarantee the TV series doesn't have anyone popping their cock out at the end like Teen Wolf does. <laughs> Which, as we know, is all our favourite bits. Yeah. Um, and then, finally, a real sort of underground one that I had to search out because of the title is Werewolves on Wheels from 71. What? Um Oh, my word. So it's a biker gang right. uh, that, because of the cult... Uh, goings on within the film in the last five minutes they become werewolves and yeah it's werewolves on wheels in the last and, and five minutes five... that's all you need oh come on right. you need a bit more that's that's <laughs> that's that's uh you know it is a complete biker movie for for 80 minutes and the last five minutes is a werewolf film and that's how I like them. That's trading. That's, that's a trading standards issue. Surely that. Come on. Hey, you've got to get the poster. It's the best poster. <laughs> Werewolves on Wheels. They are 1971. And that's it. Uh, <laughs> where else can you go from Werewolves on Wheels? You can't. Uh, perfection. <laughs> Blue Without a love of my own Blue moon 
what I was there for. You heard me say Elmer Bernstein isn't really known for these horror scores, and the four, yeah, just four that he's worked on are in no way small fry though. You've got Ghostbusters, you've got the incidental music to Michael Jackson's thriller, you've got the mad good Cape Fear, and for his first horror score work, well we landed this golden golden gift he got to score american werewolf in london now i do not want to put anything negative out there against bernstein's score it's cool it's horror history but i'd be honest with you the needle drops are where this movie lives they're exquisite for me it doesn't get any better than the opener blue moon by bobby vinton as I mentioned in the opening, it was meant to be Cat Stevens' Moonshadow, but that got rejected. And from that commentary that I watched, I learned that Landis, he actually showed rough cuts that he had with the Elvis Presley version of Blue Moon pinned against the Welsh moorland. But thank goodness that permission wasn't granted either, and Bobby Vinton's version got the nod. It's so bare bones, and if it was going to be Elvis's one, then that superstar power, that may well have taken me out of the film. I'm starting to think of his echo and how he recorded it in the studio. It's too big. It was such luck that Bobby Vinton's version got picked instead. Because now, all I am focusing on is the lyrics, the visuals, and what may lay in store as this film progresses. It is a classic. And where can you find an American werewolf in London? Well, in the UK, you can stream this for free on Stars, Virgin TV or Shudder. If you happen to live in the USA, try Peacock, AMC Plus or Spectrum On Demand. For the already converted, may I suggest to you that any of the versions of the various Arrow video releases out there of which there's quite a few now. Just get one. They're amazing. As for podcasts, and of course talking of Arrow Video, the Arrow Video podcast with Sam and Dan, they chatted about this one on their January 2021 episode. And may I also head you into the direction of the Creative Psychopaths podcast. Their take on the American Werewolf Uh, It was released onto the world just a few weeks ago. And that is it. An American werewolf in London sits on my number three position. 